Welcome to another episode of the Augmented Podcast. Augmented reveals the stories behind the new era of industrial operations, where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. Technology is changing rapidly. What's next in the digital factory? Who's leading the change? What are the key skills to learn? And how to stay up to date on manufacturing and industry 4.0? In episode 50 of the podcast, the topic is the last mile of productivity. Our guest is Laurent Berneret, former CEO of Schneider Electric USA and member of Tulip's board of directors. In this conversation, we talk about the digital transformation journey for the manufacturing industry as seen through the lens of Schneider Electric. From the early days where those that did not digitize got lost to being able to track, capture and monitor to today's reality, which is all about change management and being able to achieve scale and into the future of agile, lean and digital, which entails scaling and squeezing the value out of hardware implementation, as well as drastically improving the customer experience. Augmented is a podcast for industrial leaders, process engineers and shop floor operators, hosted by futurist Trun Arne Unheim, presented by Tulip, the frontline operations platform and associated with MFG Works, the industrial upskilling community launched at the World Economic Forum. Augmented, the Industry 4.0 podcast. Laurent, how are you? I am good, Ron. Good to see you. Yeah, uh, it's uh, great to be uh, talking to you today. And uh, I think productivity is this elusive concept that we are marching towards whether it is in manufacturing and in industry overall or in our personal lives and uh, you have certainly seen a lot of it yes so i wanted <laughs> I, I consider myself a veteran of productivity uh you know starting back from my years in general electric and specifically uh when we were uh, you know starting to to think about back in the early 2000s how were we going to go after this this incredible opportunity of, of productivity, the early days of lean manufacturing Six Sigma and uh, inventing production systems to support it. Yeah, for sure. So to summarize your 30-plus um, years experience in industry, it's going to be difficult for me to do, but uh, and, we'll, we'll, and we'll get into it because it's relevant to the, the examples that I think you'll, you'll give me. But you told me you essentially have, you started out actually after your degrees in, in complex systems, working for organizations, dealing with complex systems more generally. And then you moved into uh, a decade of, of very specific manufacturing operations. Uh, and I wanted to, to talk a little bit about that time at, at Schneider when you were running 200 and, or overseeing 220 plants. Uh, and you had a key role, I understand, in the lean implementation of, uh, you know, of that company, uh, and and you've been a plant manager, uh, and then now your your life is more like a, a board member, I guess. What if you were to summarize your own career uh, at Schneider Electric or in other leadership positions? What what is it that has characterized the drive that you had? I mean, productivity is at the heart of it. What were some of the things that drove you? into industry even in the first place? I think the first thing was the the, the technology and the fact that uh, there is always something new to learn. I've always been an, an avid learner uh, and uh, 
I got myself into fields that I didn't know much about in the beginning uh, and really tried to grasp what, what was happening at the time. So yes, for my, my first 10 years in IT systems, it, it dates back uh, where the early days of CRM, the early days of ERPs, but more uh, relevant for me became when I was a plant manager uh, in Asheville, North Carolina, a large factory. And then that's where I saw the reality of a shop floor, which surely we can put it into machines and numbers. But the most important part was the people on the shop floor and how they were driving productivity between manufacturing engineers and people running uh, the lines and being on the lines. And that's where really I got my first taste of uh, Kazan blitzes and lean manufacturing and 5S. Uh, and all of that was was done back uh, in the early 2000s with really a, an approach where uh, systems were not really a conversation. You, you would run your Kazan blitzes on the three-day and anything you could do in that very short period of time would give you 30% immediately and you would go after it once again, uh, a month later or two months later. You said something, you saw the reality of the shop floor. I can't explain how many people who come on this show and they talk about the reality of the shop floor in various different ways. There must be something so fundamental about having serious amount of experience, either leading people on the shop floor or maybe starting out there the, y yourself. What is it about this elusive sort of shop floor experience uh, that drives the thinking that you then have to apply when you are perhaps leading the shop floor? I call that, you know, I always had a philosophy of listening, learning, and leading, uh, uh, the famous three L's, and listening to what people uh, are doing on the shop floor, the obstacles they, they, they're facing, and how you can help them resolve. Then the learning comes from that, and then, then you can lead into some, uh, you know, uh, understanding of, uh, of what, can be done. The listening part, I think that that's what's so difficult. You cannot have one person listening to every operator. Well, with technology today, actually, it's not true. You can listen almost, you know, figuratively to everybody who's on the, um, on the shop floor, uh, on the on the workbench. And um, what has been lost over time is. Well, you would listen during a case and blitz for three days, and then you go back to the other things. With technology, you can listen all the time. You can actually learn all the time from what an operator is doing. And uh, again, that's, that's the beauty of what technology has brought to us uh, in a way where it's cheap and fast. Yeah, so you short-circuited a little bit to today's reality, but... This it wasn't always that easy, right? I mean, if you think about the early days of Schneider's digital transformation journey, and you and I talked about this, Schneider was in many ways early, right? Because it's you know still today quite a precursor in this area. Meaning, uh, and and you, you'll explain this better than me, but there were certain moves that were made fairly early on, at least comparatively, you know, in in the in the sector, I guess. Uh, give us a sense of where Schneider was, and, you know, during your time, what sort of moves uh, were you a part of yeah. when this digital transformation journey became, uh, well, it became apparent that it's a journey <laughs> towards the frontier. It's not, it's not just 
an action you take. No, and actually for us, uh, Edgner Electric, what, what came really quickly apparent is that uh, we could continue to be the great product company that uh, would put always the best breakers, the best uh, switchboards on the market, uh, the best solutions, automation equipment, all of that being fine. But at one point of time, how could we really stay with those products for the life cycle? And the idea there was, well, how do we service those products? Well, we knew a little bit about servicing products because some of them specifically uh, UPS for data centers need maintenance. So we would go there on a regular basis and we started to look. The first step of that digital transformation was to say, well, we need to actually capture the data out of the different pieces of equipment, the different products. And that was the first transformation, uh, building really a service-oriented approach uh, toward capturing the information and then making it meaningful so that you can either fix a current problem or you can actually do preventative maintenance. And that was the first uh, digital transformation. It was the one closest to the core of who we were, which is our products. We were a product-driven company going towards service. And uh, we did that through, again, the first stage of, um, of a digital transformation. And I would say the second uh, big milestone was to realize that then uh, we have products, but we have a customer base that is interacting with us on a day-to-day basis. And how could we make that journey, that interaction with our customers much smoother than what it was? We knew always, we were always an advocate of high service level. We had run years of being the best service in the industry, but that was not capturing everything. The friction between the time of designing a solution with our customers, commissioning a solution, and then maintaining, that was creating two many frictions in, in, in the whole supply chain there. And so the second transformation, uh, specifically here in the U.S., was to actually go and spend time in, in the life of a customer and then start, call it now, digitizing this experience, which means at every step of the way, we have a tool, a digital tool, a software that allows you to uh, really, uh, you know, grab the problem you're you're trying to spec and then all the way through commissioning and maintenance. Yeah, and and in in that phase, uh, if I am correct, Schneider did uh, quite a bit of acquisition as well, right? In one of these stages, you started acquiring companies because you you had this like 50-50 organic versus, uh, I guess, acquisition growth. I actually believe uh, that's actually for the third digital transformation. The first one, again, as I mentioned, it to do with product and uh, attaching services. The second one had to do with uh, changing the customer experience. The third one was really about um, moving and transforming ourselves into a software company. And that's where a lot of the uh, software acquisitions, again, uh, starting with some small acquisitions back uh, in the 2006-2007 uh, era, um, having to do with the shop floor. And that's where, at the time, the early uh, times for us to go into SCADA uh, with SciTech in, in Australia, but then moving on back in the U.S. 
uh, in the uh, 2011 period, going with Wonderware and uh, Foxborough, the two ways of managing a process or managing a, a, a shop floor. That was the transformation that really took us at scale to uh, being able to really uh, go toward industry 4.0 or what you call the digital factory. Um, all the way then from SCADA, which allows you to, to operate, to MES that really allows you to analyze and um, <clears throat> drive improvement of your processes. But then when you did the, I guess, the final acquisition in that cycle, the acquisition of Viva, what, what then happened? Because that, that even generated an even more profound change of, of the company, which had already changed quite a bit. Can you explain what, what happened then? Yes, I think that was a, a moment of, of truth that many companies are going through, which is you want to become a digital company. But you know you're not a native digital company. So you, you start acquiring different assets. You try to put them together. But clearly, at the end of the day, that is not your native language. And uh, what the realization was at the time when Aviva was acquired, that actually reverse engineering this, uh, this process was to actually take all software assets and put it back into Aviva as an independent company with uh, Schneider Electric having ma majority shareholding. And I think that was a brilliant move uh, there because it really put in the hands of native software, digital uh, people, the keys of driving uh, really that, that, that industry 4.0. And that, that's what's going on today at, at Schneider Electric. I wanted to compare that. These comparison are, uh, comparisons are always very difficult, but Schneider took a very, very different approach than that company, you know, which is also different from you, but GE went the opposite way and, and GE chose to digitize internally. Uh, Jeff Immelt was just on the podcast explaining his struggles with this. You know, it may have been a nice, you know, it may have been a good move, but it was very difficult and it was costly um, in, in many, many ways. Why do you think, I mean, what are the pros and cons of doing sort of an internal culture change using an external company to help you do it versus doing a complete internal yeah. uh, change, yeah. which GE attempted to do? Well, I'm sure Jeff gave you all of the all of the stories about this. I saw it again as a competitor of GE at the time. It was the one billion dollar bet onto we were going to create a platform, and I think on this one there were a lot of good things were, that were being done. First of all, we were going to go big, so GE went big. Um, we were going to bring native. Uh, digital people. A lot of the people that created the products were actually people that came from, um, uh, again, the uh, industry of software. So you can't say it was truly a homegrown. It was a, an internal initiative, but it was really Correct. put together with yeah. what I call the right ingredients. To me, um, the uh, predix, uh was really the an issue has been what the platform was going to be able to do. And I think um, building a generic platform that anybody could come and attach to uh, was, was the vision. 
Um, and that was a tough vision. I believe that the approach where you start from the apps, uh, adding the platform is one thing, but starting from what is really a, a case, uh, a, a, a use case, and then building up and making it so that the tool is simple. So again, the, the second piece is, was Predix, is Predix a truly no-code uh, platform? We can talk about many different components there that I believe uh, did not uh, allow Predix to scale fast enough. And at the same time, in this ecosystem, you had a lot of startups that figured it out. And so suddenly you wake up and you look at uh, your alternatives and you have many alternatives from a startup uh, environment, or you can go with, um, again, uh, Predix that was, was inception was, in my opinion, first uh, well-conceived and execution got, got more difficult. Let's move to the startups then, because you have your own uh, love story with startups. And after spending a lot of time, you know, I must say, in, in larger companies, you, you then met, uh, met startups. And uh, you particularly met Nathan Linder, uh, founder of uh, Tulip and Form Lab, so two, two startups. Tell me a little bit about what dawned on you as you were sort of taking on board that meeting because it was important to you? It was, it was. At that time, I had uh, retired from Shell Electric. I was opening a new chapter. And yes, Nathan was right around the corner here in Boston coming out of MIT. He reaches out to me and we start talking. And And I fell in love with um, the person and, um, uh, you know, what I call the true entrepreneurial spirit that uh, he demonstrates uh, I fell in love with um, the approach and specifically the ability to disrupt the place that I knew very well, which is the, uh, the, the SCADA and MES. And then uh, third of all, I felt like the team that he was putting together was a team uh, that was second to none. They were, he was able to attract people that I was dreaming to bring in a large corporation, <laughs> but those Brand new graduates would wanted to live in the in the startup world, and I started to feel like them. That I was thirty years old again. So yes, all of that is a love story. And and six years later, uh, here is a Tulip with a what I consider a, a very very uh, important platform and and offering to the marketplace a, a, a different way of approaching the new frontier of productivity. So let's talk about that for a second, because you know a lot of startups will claim that they are the new new thing and that they have a, an alternative approach. But there's something fairly specific about Tulip, and you mentioned no code earlier. But there, there again, there are a bunch of platforms that claim that they're easy to use, and you know whether they're no code or low code or some code or whatever it is, there is always a there's always a training involved, you know, and, and I'm, I'm guessing there, you know, you sort of have to even train to, uh, to kind of get, to get Tulip up and working, but, but much, much less than you do uh, with a lot of the uh, more legacy type solutions. What was it specifically, or what is it now that you have uh, worked, uh, you know, alongside and, and, and helped and shepherded that product in, you know, for at least five years what are the things that you're seeing uh, that a product like Tulip 
can pick up uh, and do differently than the traditional MESs do, so the, the larger sort of uh, manufacturing execution systems, or maybe even other systems that, that are used in manufacturing? Yeah. Well, for me, the first thing is that Tulip was thought of as a platform at the beginning. Okay, it was not an add-on. It was it was a platform with uh, scalability, uh, but also uh, a platform that was able to uh, provide first a no-code environment. So when you say yes, you need training, you need as much training as you need for PowerPoint. Now you can be a great right. PowerPoint presenter uh, or producer, or you can be uh, not so good, but it's, it's the kind of level of so-called training that, 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 that you need. The second piece was um, uh, with Ronnie, uh, who was a co-founder of, of Tulip, was to create very quickly the library of uh, the different devices and tools that would be natively communicating with the platform. Uh, so if you think of what makes that platform different, you have to uh, have, uh, first of all, uh, um, users and human interface that is so easy that you don't need to wait on an IT resource to help you. The second piece is you don't want every time you have a different screwdriver, mortar, scale, whatever, and so on, to say, oh, gosh, I don't have it. You know, the days of having the, the famous drivers for your printers. You have to have all of that for uh, all of the devices that you uh, operate. That library has continued to grow over time with uh, the 2D platform. And the third thing that Ronnie did was to build in uh, what I call uh, analytics from the get-go. So you didn't need to think about what am I going to need. The analytics was built in. So that's, uh, that's what I saw uh, very early as the strength of the platform uh, and continue to be. Um, and, you know, uh, you think of adding vision, adding a different uh, type of, of tools and devices. It, it is uh, quite uh, easy uh, to, to do with, with the 2D platform. If you if you sort of put yourself back in in the Snyder shoes, and not specifically in the Snyder shoes, but in the shoes of larger providers, whether they are on the delivery side of kind of digitization, uh, uh, you know, in industry, or they are on the recipient end, you know, they have a, a bunch of factories, or or both, like Snyder essentially is right, both has factories and implements. Um, what do you think? these guys are thinking about startups these days is it purely you know can we trust them can we trust them to work on our systems or is it you know gosh i hope they don't get so big that we have to acquire them because they become a threat or or is the ecosystem maturing so you're also thinking very seriously about partnering and <laughs> letting them uh, blossom and and just see what sort of happens what do you think when you are a large player today you know in in, in this day and age what is their sane and rational attitude to have towards startups that are you know admittedly coming in with novelty they're coming in with advanced technology from you know the likes of MIT and other things and and they also have different approaches yeah what what is the right way to think of that when you are a large player looking and 
saying, well, what should I do? Acquire, partner, crush? <laughs> you know, what, what should I do? No, I, I listen, that, that's been a conversation that's been going on. I think the first uh, step was to say, hey, you know what? We're going to create an incubation environment and we're going to have a startup inside of the company. Those days were back to our conversations about every large corporation has tried that. And really culturally, as well as uh, the kind of people we could attract, that, that really never took I believe today most of the big players are totally listening to what's happening and learning from the startup ecosystem. Back to, uh, back to that. They, I think many of the companies, uh, again, um, make bets as well. They usually have a specific uh, venture capital fund to uh, get in into those uh, startups. And they, by the, they observe very quickly uh, what makes uh, the difference uh, in the marketplace. So I, I believe we are now in a world where uh, there is no more opposition between large corporations and startups. Um, and you look at that for strategic, the, the, the next phase now is to find a startup that would create a very competitive play if that startup was to become part of the offer and the company. That's that's the secret sauce. It's not an easy one because most companies, as we know, it's a 50-50. You acquire a startup, it's booming, it's doing very well. And as soon as it gets acquired, something goes differently than what you were thinking. But I believe uh, the right approach is to partner uh, with startups, understand how they operate, and then let them bring the platform, the solutions to a scale which then after that, uh, you know, um, scale takes over from what I call the early days of, uh, of a startup entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, you become uh, a de facto, either standard or um, scalability is, is, is the key uh, formula for, uh, from startup to, to large corporation. Fascinating stuff. Uh, I, I wanted to, to profit from your experience to think, uh, a little bit beyond the, uh, today as well and, and think about the future. So when you look at industrial software, the world of industrial software, so, okay, we have started talking about startups, um, but obviously the picture is still dominated by, well, I don't know what it's dominated by, you, you, you tell me, but, but manufacturing certainly, uh, you know, has a lot of smaller players that are not startups, they're just smaller manufacturers. But then you have these giants, you know, both in terms of the owners of, of factories and, you know, uh, both on the discrete side and, and otherwise. Um, and, and then, of course, you have a plethora now of, of startups. How, how is this space going to segment in the next, you know, three to five to seven years? What is going to be the industrial world of software? I, I like to think about it as um, the process between from design to um, maintenance uh, of either manufacturing processes machines uh, or just uh, uh, processes and if you think in the design world which is the starting point of a, a, a digital or true digital strategy it is dominated by the large players so what we call the PLM the PIM 
still very heavy implementation. It's all about the quality of the data, uh, integrating that at the time of design from your engineering database, managing changes. All of that, I believe today, is still the world of what I call big system and platforms. And the, the startups will come to facilitate the acquisition of the data that can feed into this, uh, these systems. But that big repository, it's there and it, it drives your engineering records. And and those are the those are the Siemens and the Dassault and the PTC and maybe a few others, but th- these okay. are large firms today. They aren't necessarily they haven't been around forever. Well, Siemens has been around for a very long time, but 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 they uh, but they are larger companies right now with a global footprint. Yeah, and if you look at the story of each of them, they have traveled from wherever they came from. So if you think of PTC coming from there and going all the way to ThinksWorks and different things. We all try as players in the industry to travel from uh, through that journey. So you have the second set of big players that came from operating uh, big manufacturing. So it's the SCADA world uh, as well as some of the MES world. And that's where you still find, again, uh, the same uh, large uh, corporation. And then you have, uh, again, what happens in the shop floor and what happens in the machine. And I think this is where... Uh, the game is still uh, wide open uh, and wide open and uh, the place for startups to really make a difference. Um, think of every device, uh, a machine, a tool, uh, a camera, whatever you think of that is uh, critical, a sensor that is critical into a manufacturing process. Everyone is going through the journey of making that device intelligent and you can extract that data. And I think, again, that's the world of, uh, of startups building libraries of those assets, of those uh, devices. Then finding a platform where that data resides and where you can actually drive your productivity and your improvements. So that field starts more from a um, specialized view. Uh, if you look at water treatment system, you're going to find some small companies, 30 million, 40, 50 million dollars, that have focused on understanding what it takes to manage a water treatment system. Then you're going to have people that are focusing on forest products, you know, all of those machines that are cutting trees, that are doing different things, and they have come up with a solution. So you're seeing all of those use cases, and the deep knowledge is translated into algorithm that allows you to go into artificial intelligence, machine learning, all of the big words that we use these days. But it starts by being so close to understanding either that device or that machine. And that's where it has been still the case of startups. At one point of time, we're going to have libraries of all of that available. And if we can make sure that that data is used and is somewhere in the repository, there's going to be another play. And the play, people call it the digital twin. Right. So the digital twin in you know solves one part of this uh, conundrum, which is that each industry vertical has historically just been so different, and you have to reproduce it every time. So what you, if I understand you correctly, not only does the digital twin create a digital sort of like avatar that you can experience with and understand, but it actually solves the problem of how to 
transfer your knowledge from one domain to another because you can enter the digital skin, as it were, of, of this new process and can presumably transfer some of the experience much, much faster exactly. than you can you know, in a physical, in physical building, world. Right? We talked about a lot of manufacturing plants. We know energy consumption is in building. Same exact situation. You have an HVAC system. You have a lighting system. You have all kinds of different, uh, uh, what I call, uh, you know, operational systems. And it would be so nice to see a digital wind that would always give me the information of everything that's happening instead of having those separate systems uh, operating under one roof. And I have to have, therefore, a proprietary system. I have to have specific teams. So uh, we are still uh, in the early days, what I called of, of finding the new frontiers of productivity in buildings, in manufacturing plants, in industrial processes. You know, it's so interesting you say that. I mean, another person who was on this uh, podcast was Dana Grayson, and you know, she just started her 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 new uh, firm that focuses on what she calls foundational industries, and it is a little bit of a similar argument. You know, it is like we are now in this day and age where many of these foundational industries they still haven't changed, but the potential is becoming so real in many of them. In 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 many, and for her, you know, investing in many very diverse. Historically, at least, you would think of them very, very diverse use cases. But it, are we now there? Are we truly now at the cusp of what, you know, in the early IoT era, it was almost, I, I guess, annoying because this IoT thing was just thrown around and, you know, things will start to think, you know, MIT came out with that book and and then it didn't really happen, did it? Or it took an extra decade, whatever it is, I don't know, you can characterize it better than, than I do. But are we now finally, have the things started to consolidate to a degree that you, even in this decade, do you, do you, do you think that these digital twins, the algorithms uh, and the accumulated experience both in industry and among these newer startups, is there a moment here where we're going to see real, real step change? Or are we still fiddling? Like, is it really, really early days? Like, how early is early? I think the, the, the question is all about implementation. The technology is there. Uh, the different platforms are available implementation in at scale is where it really makes the difference. And I would say we are not in the early days of technology. It has moved tremendously. It's available. So from that perspective, all the conversations we were having 10 years ago, yeah, I mean, people will tell you artificial intelligence, machine learning has been there for a long time, protocol, open protocol for communication. So all of that. The problem has always been between availability of technology and implementation at scale, we have always struggled. I think the next five to 10 years are all about going to break through the issues of implementing. And I'm going back to what, what are those issues? First of all, uh, it's complex, takes a lot of time, takes a lot of money. And I think that's what the startups are bringing to the world, okay? When you consider, I'm, I'm going to go back to, to the world I know today of a true industry 4.0 potential now, you have a choice between uh, implementing a, a traditional MES system and you're going to have to put a capex for half a million dollars at a minimum and it's going to take you two years and you're going to have to have IT resources and so on or 
you go into a platform that says, you know what, you don't need to have a CapEx. You can start one workstation at a time. It is scalable. It is totally open protocol. And it is also, let's not forget the key topic of those days. It is cyber secure. We cannot have any kind of at scale implementation without thinking about scalability from an operational perspective, but also cybersecurity. So uh, I, I feel that the next five to 10 years, we, we're going to see some massive implementations. I believe it's going to come from uh, machine manufacturers, uh, like, for instance, DMG Mori, saying, you know what? Done. I am going to take every CNC machine that I produce and I'm going to make it smart. I'm going to make it so that it's natively industry 4.0. And we're going to see many more machine manufacturing breaking through uh, and not maybe trying to do it themselves. And that's going to be the first uh, case. And then you're going to have the second, which are the big industrial manufacturers. So Stanley Black and Decker going and saying, you know what, this is a corporate initiative and we're going to really go for an industry 4.0 or a digital factory approach and they're going to really make it possible at scale. So making it possible at scale is so much more difficult when you're not just dealing with software. You may be dealing with Hardware, first off, right? So that's one thing. But then you're dealing with a material reality, what we, I guess, still are calling the factory, even though what a factory is, is, is also seems to be like up for grabs because all the elements that we used to call a factory, even what you now call the shop floor, right? And in, in COVID and like remote shop floors and who knows, there are so many things that are changing. But you said something earlier that I wanted to uh, capture uh, when we had our pre-call. You said something about the real transformation is when every device and machine will speak and declare their status and essentially operate with its own asset library and have uh, you know information the same that we give information about body bodily function or you know the same way a body is treated when you are at a hospital essentially you you're taking all the functions as a matter of course and you're monitoring this and you're saying this somehow is going to be the that's going to be the baseline exactly everything else is on top exactly and that's why i say that transformation will start from machine manufacturing tool manufacturer the bottom line is I am a, a person working on the shop floor. I have a workbench. I'm arriving in this environment, and then suddenly this environment declares itself. I have a scale. I have a, um, a, a laser, a gun. I have a visual camera. I have all of, and all of that automatically declares itself, self-discovery, the, uh, what we do with servers today in data centers, all of that. And in, in addition to this, it's also going to be able to monitor almost every one of my movement as an operator, uh, uh, you know, from how I'm going to um, learn on the system all the way to uh, quality issues that may be happening because of the placement of a component. So all of that, in my opinion, yes, is the, the vision of the future. And it's going to happen by having all these devices uh, 
intelligent and auto-discoverable. So if you were to summarize for me, and we haven't used the word words lean and agile so much. You, we started out a little bit with uh, you, you talking about so, some of these concepts from the Japanese kind of production uh, techniques. But you know, you you call this a digital transformation journey, both the one you've been on and the one Schneider's been on, and of course the one that the entire industry is on. And you feel like there is a new frontier here. How does that relate then back to the Toyota production system, back to lean production and back to to agile, which is, I guess, a concept more from the software field and then into sort of digital and digital transformation. Are agile, lean and digital now fusing together? And is there a third thing that's being created in the most advanced companies that are implementing this? Or is it just more of the same? It's just more of lean, but with a little digital component or more of agile mixed in. How, how are we to understand these kind of quality movements that have been part of, of industry for so long? I, you know, when, as you said, the, the, the early days of, of lean and Six Sigma, and for some companies, they have moved uh, from what you would call a manual system. If you had a 5S uh, a chart in a factory or if you had your lean manufacturing where you would do your daily production review and you would, uh, you know, write down on the on the chart what were the different problems. These were the early days. The Toyota production system was a great example about how to drive. Again, we're going to talk about Kanban card and all of the different components of a production system. In the early days, they were not digitized, which means you were doing this meeting with your associates on the shop floor. You were writing all of the things, but it would get lost because it, it was never recorded. So I think the first change, so you still keep the agile, you still keep the lean manufacturing system. The difference now is you capture, you monitor everything that's happening, not just at a machine, as I mentioned earlier, but also in what employees, what associates declare what's happening in their environment. My machine broke or I need assistance, etc. And so the same concepts, the same principles of Lean, of 5S, of Agile, my opinion, are here to stay. They're just going to be amplified by the fact that we're capturing what's happening in the manufacturing uh, shop floor, uh, which we were not doing in the past. It would seem to me that this is an exciting decade for, for you because these things are coming together. A lot of the things are still valid, but there's a lot of change on the horizon. A lot of changes. And I, I believe yeah. you know this is going to be the, the, the test for any companies, whether uh, you want to embrace it, uh, whether you want to uh, keep your um, in-house uh, processes versus trying to look at what else can be accelerated for yourself. So it's going to be all about change management. You know, we you talk to me about how do you do get it at scale. You have the technology, uh, you can have the systems and so on. If you cannot do change management right, you're not going to do. It was the case for Lean and 5S and Scrum and Agile, it's all about change management. And I think that element of um, change management will be there uh, with us. And that's what leadership is about. How are you a change agent? 
And uh, when I see, uh, you know, how people bring new technology in a company, usually it's one individual that becomes, that falls in love with something and suddenly it spreads, it becomes contagious. And I'm still a believer that a lot of innovation comes from individuals. So am I. Well, this is fascinating, Laurent. I hope to to have you back to to discuss these things as as they as they change as well. Um, thank you so much for for giving us a a sense of what you have learned, you know, on this journey and for painting a pretty exciting, I would say, picture of the new frontier of productivity. It's a never ending. It's like a little Star Trek thing here at the end. It's a never ending quest. But it's a fun one. It's a fun one. So. Thank you. Thank you, Trond. I'm happy to really share my, my views and experience when I can. And uh, thanks for the opportunity. Oh, you're, you're so welcome. Thanks. Thanks a lot again. You have just listened to episode 50 of the Augmented Podcast with host Trond Arne Unheim. The topic was the last mile of productivity. Our guest was Laurent Verneret, former CEO of Schneider Electric USA and member of Tulip's board of directors. In this conversation, we talked about the manufacturing industry's digital transformation journey. My takeaway is that benefiting from the industry luminaries I talk to every week, I'm eyeing a day when hardware, meaning physical objects of technological origin, can scale at the speed and magnitude of software. This will create a whole new world, one where the sky's not the limit, in fact. We need it because it might arrive just in time for us to avoid the complete destruction of our ecosystem, or at least to adapt to it. A set of issues we will tackle in forthcoming episodes about sustainability. For now, let's just work on the last mile, turning analytical improvements into intelligently preparing for unprecedented scale change in industrial manufacturing and innovation, all of which will be sorely needed soon enough. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at augmentedpodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you liked this episode, you might also like episode 33, Sustainable Manufacturing at Scale, episode 42, Business Beyond Buzzwords, or episode 23, Digital Manufacturing in the Cloud. Here's a clip from my honest chat with Jeff Immelt in episode 42, Business Beyond Buzzwords. Yeah, so, um, look, my dad worked for GE. I worked for GE for 35 years. I, I love the company, and I love the people I worked with, and I did my best every day. Yet with all that, there are some people that blame me for a lot of things associated with the company. And so that's heartbreaking, right? That's, that's, that's heartbreaking. But I'm not the only person that's gone through stuff like that. And the decision you have to make is, are you just going to keep, are you going to quit and just go into hiding? Or are you going to keep on trying, right? And so I kept trying. I kept trying to add value. I kept trying to help people like Max and the time. Uh, and, and I think that's the message. The message is sometimes Despite best intentions, intentions, things don't work the way you want them to. But you just can't quit. You, 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 you can't quit. You got to keep trying and, and find new avenues to add value. Hopefully, you'll find something awesome in these or other episodes. 
If so, do let us know by messaging us, and we would love to share your thoughts with other listeners. The Augmented Podcast is created in association with Tulip, connected frontline operations platform that connects the people, machines, devices, and the systems used in a production or logistics process in a physical location. Tulip is democratizing technology and empowering those closest to operations to solve problems. Tulip is also hiring. You can find Tulip at tulip.com. Please share this show with colleagues who care about where industry and especially industrial tech is heading. To find us on social media is easy. We are Augmented Pod on LinkedIn and Twitter and Augmented Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. See you next time. Augmented, industrial conversations that matter.